G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupational therapy and occupation. These next two episodes are a, a big chat that I had with an OT from California called Sarah Putt, uh, who has just got the most extensive experience uh, all around the world that I've ever come across. So I hope you enjoy. So what's your favorite podcast? If you like had to narrow it down to one, only one you could listen to the rest of your life, what would you listen to? <laughs> God damn. Yep, I'm putting you on the spot. You're supposed to be asking me the questions. And oh, that's I'm, okay. I don't mind. This is, <laughs> this is your show now. It's fine. I don't know. I'd probably, it'd probably be something like Joe Rogan just because if it was only one, the mm-hmm. variety of conversation would be at least interesting. And he puts out like three a week, so that would okay. that would keep me going. Yeah. I don't, I don't think if I could only listen to one, I don't think it could be like about podcasting because that would just be <laughs> yeah, right. I'll be like yep cool get bored yeah yeah even now I'm like I'm pretty picky with the ones I listen to about that because I've listened to so many I'm like there's nothing really new right it's now. all the same it's mainly just about like updated or new ideas and that comes around pretty rarely mm-hmm I, yeah I only listen to one and it's it's mainly like um it's more of it's more focused on blogging, yep. but the guy also does a podcast, and so then he will talk about podcasting too. Yeah. Um, and so I I listen because I, I I like getting kind of both both aspects of it. Yeah. See, I used to try. I used to pretend to blog. I don't think I was ever good at it. But <laughs> you you've mentioned that you've written some posts. I have so I, my original website, which was the same website that I've got now. Mm-hmm. used to be just a blog and I used to have heaps of stuff on there. And then I can't even remember what happened. I just kind of gave up on it and it lapsed and disappeared and I lost it all. And then when I decided I was going to start this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to put it, I'm going to essentially rebuild my website and just right. make it a bit better. And But I'd lost all of the pre, I found like one or two of the old posts and I've put them on there, but Okay. Uh, yeah, there's so much content that just disappeared <laughs> into the ether when that happened. I was so mad. Right. I'm like, why? That you could have just. I didn't back anything up. Like I was Ugh. stupid. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I should back up my stuff. See, I use Evernote for pretty much everything, and always have, even yeah. when I was writing my my blog. Uh huh. Still never saved any it? of the. Once the blog posts were in there, I just deleted it from Evernote. I'm like, why? It doesn't like cost me any extra to keep it i have no idea why i got rid of it i'm an idiot well i think you you don't think that that like losing things will happen until it does and then you're like shit pretty much (laughs) why didn't i do that i think in my head like putting it on a website was the backup right you would think so yeah oh well it's up there again now i just haven't got around to writing anything i'm enjoying podcasting more so i'm like i'm just gonna do this Right. I I think there's a time and a place for blog posts and for podcasts. And I love I love reading blogs. And usually I'll wake up in the morning and I'll read a couple posts and all of that. But like during the day when I'm actually doing stuff like driving or working out or anything, you know, doing the dishes or whatever, I was pop on a podcast. And I just love it because you can actually hear the energy and you can hear the passion and you get more 
I don't, you get kind of more of a connection rather than just like reading the words on the screen. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think pretty much exactly why I enjoy what I'm doing is I get to, mm-hmm. or I get to form a connection with like the people that I'm talking to, but also right. I remember it was some podcast I was listening to again about podcasting that was saying like, it's a really intimate form of communication because you're literally in people's ears. Like you're, right. you're, you're right there. <laughs> um, and I was like, you, you can't replicate that with a blog. I'm like, yeah, you can write with all the flowery language and uh, try and, you know, make it sound like you're really passionate and stuff, but there's still, it's still not going to convey as much as you can with your voice. Right. And to me, this is easier because I hate writing. <laughs> Lazy. <laughs> I just, it's just not my wheelhouse. I'm like, I would much rather talk. I'm good at talking. I can talk. Right. I just, maybe I'll just talk and then get it transcribed and then post <laughs> it as a blog. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Growing up, I always loved writing. And so when I started kind of starting to write some like blog posts and what, like it just kind of, I want to say it came naturally. It didn't, I I still had to like struggle through it and figure out what I was doing. But I realized that I had that passion like growing up. I used to do a lot of poetry and all of that. And like talking has never been a strong suit of mine. And so actually doing like podcasting is way harder for me because I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm really reflective and I like to think about things. And when you're, you know, when you're chatting, you just have to say what you're thinking. So for me, it's almost, I prefer writing and it's a challenge for me to talk. And I'm like, I'm pushing myself to improve upon that. I think that's, that's very insightful. Um, <laughs> I, and I've had a discussion with a friend of mine about similar, like but me, obviously um, I tend to, I am also quite reflective, but I tend to process things by talking. Mm-hmm. So whereas they like to, you know, get the information and go away and think about it and then formulate some, you know, response and then come back, I tend to think on the fly and it processes as I'm talking. If I go away and think about it, nothing will happen. Whereas <laughs> if I'm able to sit down and talk something through, stuff makes sense on the fly for me which is probably why i'm probably more suited to to this i don't know right. maybe, maybe i'm just a, a very auditory learner i don't know i never thought i was but maybe that is the case i just yeah. hearing it out loud and processing it i, I just process things easier um by yeah. saying them so that's why i always used to like things like supervision and I, I i would write a lot of the blog posts i used to put up on my website were reflective posts on uh, learning and uh, you know, conferences and workshops and all that kind of stuff that I used to go to. But to me, that was very, to me, that stuff's easy to reflect on. Whereas mm-hmm. that more sort of personal reflection about, you know, how did it made me feel, how I reacted to that, why I reacted to that. I, I don't, seem to be as good at that either going away and thinking about it or journaling or writing it down whereas I can talk about it and 
work it out in five minutes kind of thing. It just, I don't right. know. That's just how I'm wired. I'm weird. Apparently I've been told <laughs> many times. I think, I think we're all weird. <laughs> Everyone's weird in their own weird I little was, way. Yeah. I was literally, uh, I went and had dinner with my parents last night and the topic of conversation was how weird, I mean, we were all talking about how weird we all are, but then the focus like shifted to me and my mom's like, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that about you. And it was like all these like weird things that I do. I was like, yep. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm." (laughs) Thanks mom. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. She's like, I do it too. And I was like, yeah, I got it from somewhere. (laughs) Didn't make this up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So why don't you, so you said you used to write poetry and you used to write a lot. Why don't you now? Yeah. No, well, I don't do poetry anymore, but I do a lot of writing. Why don't you write poetry? What's wrong with poetry? I don't know. I just didn't get back into it. There's nothing wrong with it. I I don't know. Good question. Hadn't really thought about why I'm not doing it now, but I feel like that was probably like middle school, high school, and then... Uh, I don't think I did any of that in college or anything afterwards. So it probably just shifted. And now my creative outlook is more on the, you know, the writing side rather than the poetry side. And if you're that inclined to write as opposed to speak, why did you start a podcast? (laughs) Where did that drive come from? You know what? I hate doing this. I'm going to do it. Yep, pretty much. Um, Because part of it was a personal challenge to overcome my, like, fear of public speaking. Uh, Growing up, I was so shy. Like, people thought I didn't talk because I was just that shy. Me too. And, yeah. (laughs) No, no one believes me. I actually was really incredibly shy at one point in my life. Well, maybe no that's a precursor to starting a podcast. No, that's all. I hope that changed a little while before that, but I'm like, no one believes me. I'm like, it's true. If you had known me, yeah. I'm like, I don't even know when it was, probably high school, early high school. I'm like, I was really okay. shy. I, I made a conscious decision to not be. So I would do stupid things like just saying hello to people walking past me in the shops and just like putting myself outside of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and just slowly learn not to be. But yeah, no one still believes me. I'm like, why? How is that so hard to believe? <laughs> I I feel like it's the same way. When I meet people now and I tell them how shy I used to be, they they don't believe me either. They're like, I don't see it. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh, it was, you know, it was there. Um, and so, yeah, so partially is that like that challenge and just like pushing me out of my comfort zone. Um, and then the other side would be because I think we as OTs and as a profession need to get out there more. And there really just aren't that many OT podcasts. Uh, there are a few more that are popping up here and there. Um, and there are some great ones out there, but if you look at, you know, any other, um, any, any other area, there's hundreds, you know, if not thousands of people podcasting about gardening or dogs or whatever it is, you know, and with OTs, there's just not that many. And so, 
Why'd you do it? Oh, we, we, well, that's how we connected when we had a little chat on Twitter the other a couple, <laughs> few weeks ago. And I think we pretty much found all of them <laughs> on in that, in that chat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there was the uh, was seniors flourish on mm-hmm. the air, uh, lifestyle by design, which is yep. Karen Jacobs. Uh, I can't think of the other one. Glass half full. Glass half full. Yep. Um. Uh, I know. Well, um, Samantha's got Grey Revolution. Mm-hmm. There's, it's called start a therapy practice and he's an OT and talks to other, other OTs, PTs, SLPs, all of that about starting like a private practice and all of that. There's a lot I've found that are very specific. So like about a certain practice area or about a certain client group. There's also a high school one. Uh, not a high school one, a school one. And I can't remember what it was called. Yes, I, I can OT picture, Schoolhouse. That one, I was going to say, I can picture yes. the image in my head, but I couldn't remember the name of it. Um, so there's a few that are OT kind of specific, and then there's a few that have branched out and are looking at like all different professions, and they just happen to be run by an OT uh, <laughs> kind of thing. But I, I agree. I, I don't think – I think it's a highly, highly underutilized medium. Um for OTs, which is weird. Like I've, I've been involved quite sort of heavily with OT in promoting online technology for a number of years now. Like I run MH for OT, um, the Facebook network, and I'm part of, or have helped uh, as part of the, like help the OT for OT ladies to, you know, run their virtual conference and all sorts of stuff done heaps and heaps of you know conference presentations and workshops and all kinds of stuff doing that and then came across podcasting and went where is everyone <laughs> right like you go onto facebook you go onto linkedin you go onto twitter there are just hundreds of ot's and mm-hmm. then like we've literally i think named pretty much every ot podcast that i can think of in a minute yeah and right. then, but if it's, you if you it's go it's kind of ridiculous yeah if you go into itunes or you know um, Stitcher or anyone, any any podcast app, and like look for you know physiotherapy or look for speech therapy or speech pathology or any any other health profession. There are hundreds, right? And I don't I, I don't know whether it's just that we haven't discovered it yet, which I find hard to believe, or whether we're just a really shy profession and don't like talking about ourselves. Yeah, I. I listened to a bunch of physical therapy podcasts um, and I found so much inspiration. You know, they're, they're close enough where I was like, yeah, I can listen to this and get some good value out of it. But then I was like, there's so much more that OTs can bring to the table about our profession. And yeah, it was the same thing. Like I went and Googled and tried to find other occupational therapy podcasts and it was it was hard to come up with a handful of them, um, and so I guess I was like, "Well, if it's not there, might as well try it out." Fill the gap. <laughs> yeah. And OT for life was born. Yes. I do like the spelling. It um, it amuses me. <laughs> 
L-Y, is it L-Y-F-E? Life? Yes. Because I'm trying to be hip. Oh, you, are you, are you, oh, well, yeah, that, no, I'm going to, I'm going to get really cheesy here. Uh, because, <laughs> because OT is the why of life. Wow. Bam. <laughs> wow. Mic drop. Yep. That we're was, done. That was cheesier than I was expecting. <laughs> I was expecting yep. cheesy, but that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. The why of life. Uh huh. That's actually not a bad slogan. You should use that as your like <laughs> slogan. I I haven't put it in words, like, in actual written word, but when like when I've met people in, at conferences and whatnot, and I you know I tell them, oh yeah, the podcast, you know it's L Y F E, and uh, they're like, huh, I'm like, because O T is the Y of life. They're like, yeah. oh, hold up, I got oh, you. Oh, I got it. And I was like, mm-hmm, yep. That's your intro right there. <laughs> I just I just did it. Yeah. See, recorded. <laughs> I'll send it to you. That's your new intro. Done. As long as you say it. I'll say it. <laughs> I'll record. I'll be the voice actor. Perfect. It'll confuse, it. it'll confuse everyone. This like bassy Australian doing the intro and then <laughs> you come in. I'll be like, what? I'm confused. Uh-huh. Yeah. So tell me about your OT journey. How did OT discover you? Um, I, I have done a little bit of research on this, i.e. Okay. I, I have stalked your LinkedIn profile. And I don't know if there's that much on there. Oh, there's enough. I'm Was a very, there enough? I'm a very okay. good detective. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different facets to your professional journey. Yes. Yes. Everything from <laughs> psychology to horses to your own business to now podcasting. Yeah. So start, so obviously, psychology came before OT. How did that come about? Um, gosh. Because that was your undergrad, yeah? Taking it back. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I was... Back. It wasn't that long ago. God. You could sound like you're 90. So please, had to, had to think about it. So I stumbled into an intro to psych class my freshman year of college. And at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, as a profession and just loved it. I mean, I ate up all the material and it was like challenging enough, but also super interesting. And yeah, like literally, I think after like the second day of the class, I'm like, yep, I'm going to be a psych major didn't know what I wanted to do with it, but yeah, I was like, I like it and I'll just, I'll just go with it. And then I'll figure out something uh, later on. And I didn't know about OT until probably 2000, 2004 ish, early two thousands. I'd never heard of it before. And I That's happened to be I working. OT. <laughs> 2004. Right? Um, yeah, I was, I was working as a behavior therapist uh, for school. And one of my kiddos had occupational therapy. I was like, all right, let's, let's go. I got to take you anyway. I'll go see what they're doing. 
And I guess it kind of was the same thing with psych. Like I, I walked into the little clinic room and, you know, saw the ball pit, saw all the fun equipment. <laughs> and I was like, that gets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should be on every marketing post. It's just toys. Right? Yes. Scooter board and ball pit and swings and, swing. and I'm sold. Yeah. Done. I'm never yeah. leaving. So like that night I went home and, you know, Googled occupational therapy, occupational therapy schools. I looked at it and I was like, this sounds good. And I just, I jumped right in. That was it. You, uh, you went to USC, didn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, am aware of, I know one USC graduate, Mr. Bill Wong, who I'm sure you may have run into mm-hmm. uh, on Twitter uh, every now and then. Yes. Um. So it's because the the actual courses work a bit differently over there. So you did your undergrad in psych, and mm-hmm. then was it a master's in OT? Yeah. So I yeah I got my bachelor's in psychology. I took just about a year off in between, and I was doing some prereqs and still working and everything. And it was during that year that I really was like, yeah, OT is what I want to do. And then applied and got in and started school the next year uh, or the, yeah, like a couple months later or whatever. And uh, yeah, it was about a two year, maybe a little bit longer program, master's program. And then where did you end up once you finished that? Uh, well, I, I was like peds all the way. So then I just started working for a pediatric clinic. And I was doing school-based and uh, clinic-based and also in-home therapy. So I was kind of seeing the whole gamut of, I mean, outside of being in the hospital um, and just kind of got exposed to everything. And then like kind of over the years, I just like slowly started to like hone in and focus a little bit more. You know, I kind of, I got rid of the school-based and I was just doing clinic and in-home. And then I got rid of the clinic-based and now I'm solely doing in-home therapy uh, in early intervention, which in the state of California, it's birth to three years of age. That is very early. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's solely what you do now. That's all I do. Yeah. Yeah, I have a handful of clients that are a little bit older, but 98% of my caseload right now is wow. under three. Mm-hmm. I had a really good question and I forgot what it was. <laughs> That'll happen. I've only had one coffee today. It'll come back. Heavily under Yeah, I guess it's early for you. It's, it's not that later. early. It should be. I thought you were going to say you only had one beer. And then I was like, wait, it's <laughs> nine it's 10 o'clock in the morning. In the morning. <laughs> but yes, I've only had one beer. Um, so where do the, where do the horses fit? Oh yeah. Uh, so I grew up riding horses. Um, gosh, I'm, it's funny as I'm talking, I'm starting to realize a pattern. (laughs) Um, I, let's see, I went, I was probably like four or five years old and went with my parents on a horse and went, this is me. (laughs) I was actually born on horseback. (laughs) Yeah, we went to like a county fair, you know, or something like that and did did one of the little pony rides. 
And I like my parents told me, I have no recollection of it, but my parents told me they're like, we put you on and you could not stop smiling. And so after <laughs> that, I, I was hooked and rode horses all throughout growing up. Uh, I showed competitively, so I did hunter-jumper equitation. I have um, no idea what that means, but it sounds fancy. So I, I did jumps. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Speak, yeah. Speaking of a non-horse person. <laughs> I would, they have horses in Australia, yeah, right? I know, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> uh, so I would do, if you've ever watched the Olympics, there's a ring and there's like jumps I would never do the, the big jumps like that. I didn't quite get to that level. Uh, but that's that's kind of what I would focus on. Because there's other ones where they're like out on like those huge like pastures and they're jumping over everything. I never did that. I did the little, little courses. It's, it looks like the same courses that they put dogs on. They make the dogs run around and jump over things and run through round sticks and... Never thought about it that it's way. It's just kind of the bigger version. It's like the, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's obstacle course light and that's for dogs. And then there's obstacle course pro for horses. Yeah. You could think that way. <laughs> so, how, so, and you, I, again, saw this in my stalking. You are actually qualified <laughs> in, I can, I can never pronounce it, hippotherapy? Hippotherapy. Um. So I have taken the first level one training course. There's, there's two courses and then there you can sit for an exam. So I've actually only done the first, the first training of it, but you can practice with, technically you don't even need the the first course. They, they recommend that you take it. And I would recommend that you take it if you want to practice in that area. Um, But yeah, so I don't actually have like the certification, but I completed half of the requirements in order to meet that. And I, I couldn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I couldn't picture mm-hmm. you putting a zero to three-year-old onto a horse. So I'm assuming this is more of a, a passion project. Yeah. So to- right. I'm not, I'm actually not currently practicing uh, or, or doing any sort of hippotherapy at the moment. I've done a little bit here and there, uh, but based on my location in Los Angeles, uh, I am at least an hour, if not more, away from any facility, any any horse area. And so with my schedule and everything, it just hasn't been conducive to get me out there. Um, so I enjoy it and I love it. But, you know, I'm spending an hour, an hour and a half, two hours in the car to get there and then come back. Um, in the U.S., don't quote me on this because I don't know specifically. I think some people are starting a little bit younger. Typically, they're not starting until three or later, but I have heard of some people starting up two, two and a half. Other countries, though, there's a lot of research coming out that they're putting, you know, 18 months, 16 month year olds on horseback and finding some good benefits there. Uh, but I know that the US tends to be a little bit um, less lenient. So just because I know nothing about horses or hippotherapy, what mm-hmm. is it? <laughs> How does it work? What is the yeah. what is the point and purpose? <laughs> so I'll start by kind of explaining 
the difference between hippotherapy and say equine assisted, equine assisted therapy or equine assisted uh, activities. Uh, so hippotherapy has to be done by a licensed occupational thera therapist, physical therapist or speech therapist. Um, and so that's the, the big difference with hippotherapy is actually done by a licensed therapist where equine assisted uh, activities um, could be done by a horseback riding trainer or a teacher, or a psychologist, you know, anything like that. Um, and so within, within the scope of hippotherapy, it's really utilizing the motion and the movement of the horse to facilitate the gains and the progress of the client. And so I forget the, the exact number, but it's something crazy. It's like in the thousands. So within a typical session, you know, 30, 45 minutes, a horse is hitting the ground like thousands of times. And so it's that repetitive movement and motion. So like a lot of kiddos where you're working on postural stability or bilateral coordination, uh, you know, walking, anything like that they're getting that kind of the mimicking of walking and the mim mimicking of, of the motion through the horse. And then, if, you know, from an OT lens, you're also getting all of the visual stimuli, you're getting the vestibular input, you're getting the proprioceptive input by, you know, being able to kind of maintain your body position. Um, you're getting the, the smells of being at the barn, you're getting the feeling of the horse, like, there, it, it's literally just like a complete bombardment of the sensory system. I can see how excited you are about this. Right? <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy to watch. It's it's pretty cool. So it's oh, I'm surprised. Oh, actually, it, I think I I'll ask you. No, I can still hear you. Maybe it's just the video. Can you hear me? Oh, you just got okay. up and walked away. I'm I'm opening. Hold on. Sometimes my internet doesn't like me so i'm going to open that door if you notice any like weird sounds or something i'll shut it again but sometimes just opening the door will help my internet <laughs> ah okay being all temperamental good. here all good it happens um yeah. obviously there's a lot of benefits to actually doing on a horse but it does surprise me not that i would agree with it but it does surprise me that no one's tried to simulate that movement for that purpose so that they could do it in a hospital kind of thing. So, oh gosh, I did see something a couple months ago and I'm blanking on the school, but um, some engineers at one of the universities in the States actually built a robotic horse. That's creepy. And like, you know, I can, I can see the, positives and I can see the negatives. The, the positives being that you could do it in a hospital so you can do it with more medically fragile uh, kiddos or adults that, you know, have... Couldn't get out um, to where the horses are. Exactly. Um, and you can also take it to places that don't have horses, right? Because if you have horses, you have to have a lot of land and you have to be able to have a place to keep the horse and all of that. So in, in those aspects, I think it's great, but you kind of miss out on all the other stuff that I was talking about, yeah. about being at the barn, um, you know, going 
up and down, like uneven surfaces and going up a hill, going down a hill, how that, how that kind of impacts your posture and, you know, leaning backwards, yeah. leaning forwards, going to the side, all of that kind of stuff. They, they'll have you like walk up a ramp or step up onto kind of like a big box type thing. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that you can challenge the client by, you know, utilizing the barn. Yeah. And it's not just being on the horse, but having to walk up to get onto the horse, you know, having to pet the horse and being able to um, tolerate that tactile input and, 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 and that stuff. So I think it's good, but then it kind of just limits some of the other positive benefits, I think. I think it would, because I can see why, it's, like I said, it's not something I would agree with because I'm, very much in the uh, occupation-based practice camp, uh, right. but I, I would. It just sounded to me like I'm like someone's gonna do this. This is yep. This is the kind of thing someone is going to build a pretend horse that simulates the walking <laughs> and the movement, and you know, I mean, you can find what is it those bull riding things in bars. So I'm surprised that you know no one's done it with a horse to right. you know bring it to. And I can see where it, it might be. Of benefit, like you said, to, you know, people that can't get to a horse or, mm-hmm. you know, people who can't leave the hospital or just having it on a rehab board for kids and that kind of stuff. But I, I think its use, I would I would like to see it as a use as almost like a step down thing to being able to eventually get to a horse. Right. Because then, like you said, you do get all of those other benefits and you're actually engaging in an occupation that is sort of, I don't know, more, I say more realistic, but I say that because I can't think of the right word. Um, I say mm-hmm. that because it, like it has all of those varying like stimuli at once that you have to process and deal with at the same time. So you have to, right. you know, change your posture, change your bracing, core work, vestibular work, smells, sights, all of that, sounds, everything mm-hmm. at the same time, which is I think, that's one of the reasons I don't, I'm not, and I never have been a huge fan of simulation anything. Um, right. I understand that they serve a purpose and, you know, but I, I just think that often they're used independently instead of in a process of trying to get that person to be able to engage in the full occupation uh, that would be my my concern with a simulated sort of hypotherapy would be that maybe it would end up just being that and, you know, you'd see things mm-hmm. like there'd be a simulated hypotherapy centre open up somewhere and people would just go there and I'll... And then, yeah. and then, you know, anyone can do that. Like that's not an I, OT thing. I think one of the other big parts of hippotherapy and utilizing it within within the sense of like a real horse uh is that kind of social social emotional and like relationship between the client and And the the horse horse. yeah and you know like a lot of kiddos they might have some some speech limitations or they might be really shy or they might have some kind of sensory stuff going on modulation issues and when they realize that they have to somehow communicate to the horse what they want the horse to do. Like if they want to go forward, they have to either tell the horse to go or give it a pat or do some sort of gesture to, so the horse knows. Mm. 
there is this this bond that develops that is I mean, it, it's really just special. And I don't think that that would happen in a simulated environment because it's, I mean, maybe it could, but it, it would be different. It's a robot compared to a living, breathing animal. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't see it. <clears throat> I couldn't see it happening. I couldn't see it happening at all, but if it did, I couldn't see it happening to even remotely the same sort of level that you mm-hmm. get with an actual animal. And I think that's, that's the same with like you know other pet assisted therapies like you know you see dogs usually. Um, I think the a lot of the benefit with that is the relationship you build with the animal. That's that's where a lot of the the therapeutic benefit comes from, if not most of it, mm-hmm. for for that particular one. Obviously, the horse has other benefits in that you're sitting on it and you know you can get a lot of other inputs, but you know, you're not going to ride a dog, hopefully. So, <laughs> I've seen sheep riding. <laughs> I have, but not for therapy. No, not for therapy. <laughs> Usually after a few adult beverages. <laughs> it's actually a thing, and I can't remember what it's called now, but yeah, where you put little kids on sheep, and it's it's like um, it's like rodeo. It's like a rodeo event. Let's put it on sheep. See how long it can hang on. Yeah, hmm. yeah, pretty much. We'll we'll have to link to a video. (laughs) I'll Google one. (laughs) Yeah, luckily my niece, uh, when we we went to a fair one time and we saw it, and fortunately for her, she was too young at the time, so we didn't throw her on. But like my sister and my brother-in-law, we were all like, this is fantastic. (laughs) We want to put her on a sheep. (laughs) How old is she now? It's time to go back to the fair. (laughs) Right. She'll be six. So yeah, she's- perfect. Perfect sheep riding age, as <laughs> so I'm told. Uh-huh. <laughs> random tangent, but yes, there you go. The best tangents. I like a random <laughs> tangent. Okay. That's interesting. See, I've never, like, I've obviously heard of it, but I've never, never really, I've never looked into it because mm-hmm. it's never really anything that's come up for the population that I've worked with. So I've always worked in mental health. And it's, I'm sure the, the actual connection side of it um, would have benefit. But like I said, there's other animals that you can get that that are probably a little bit more accessible. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do have horses in Australia, but the <laughs> same issue, they're not everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of limitations with it too. So, you know, it's not something that is widespread. And, and easy, easy, easy to access, I guess you could say. I'd imagine there would be, and again, your health system's different to ours, but I'd imagine there would be some issue with funding it too. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge issue. And just, you know, just having, paying for the horse, paying for the lodging, paying for the supplies, paying for the therapist to conduct the session. Then you also have a horse handler and you also have sidewalkers and you have all these other people, which a lot of them can be volunteer based, but some of these people you actually have to pay as well. Um, it's yeah, the, the funding piece is very, very difficult. And I, I know a lot of places will reach out, you know, for the families and for the communities and uh, for other like funding resources, because it is, it is such an important treatment but 
there's just lots of um, lots of limitations in order to get it to actually happen. So, because I've seen, uh, I probably see more about it in the states than I do here. I don't see much, mm-hmm. much at all, really here. Um, so it must be some like a valid or like a recognized therapeutic modality over there or is it still fighting to become that or what's the I feel like it depends on who you talk to uh I feel like it's not as recognized as it should be but it's becoming more recognized uh I think with I think with a lot of aspects of therapy um the the research has to catch up to what's actually happening. And so now there's a ton of research being done, but it's, you know, it's not published yet or it's in the works. And so there's still, it still needs work. Yeah. I think that's, that's a lot of areas of OT. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, we, we, we have a profession that literally was started on an assumption uh, and it took us sort of 30 years, 40 years before we even really, well, before occupational science to actually start putting together some of this research to back up what we know, like experientially to work. Right. So I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all, really. It seems to be quite, <laughs> exactly. a, quite a common thing for our wonderful profession. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... A, a lot of people have a misconstrued vision or view that getting on a horse is hippotherapy and that's not, that's horseback riding. You know, yeah. it, it has to be facilitated by a therapist and all of this. And so again, going back to, I, I think it was actually your episode that came out yesterday. Um, but getting getting the awareness out and advocating for our profession of what we can do and also having it where people understand that it's not just I think you said something along the lines of like teaching people to cook you know or something like that like we are helping in so many other ways but when you compartmentalize it down to one thing it often gets kind of overlooked in the shuffle of everything yeah yeah and I think that's that's I think when I was talking to Steph that was about we tend to, I still don't think OTs have a very good grasp of how to explain it. And we, so we tend to resort to um, like practice examples instead of mm-hmm. this is what actu- OTs actually do. Like this is how we think. This is our, our unique offering. But here's what I do day to day, which is different from every other OT you'll ever meet in your life. But this is how I'm going to explain it to you anyway. So mm-hmm. I think, well, there you go. Uh, I was going to say for me, um, being that I work in early intervention, uh, most people that might only have kind of a glimmer um, of what an OT does, they'll look at me and be like, well, what what do you do? You know, you, you work with babies. Like, what does an OT do with them? You know, like, don't their parents do all their occupations for them? And like all this kind of stuff. And so I feel like I'm always having to provide examples of what I do because other people don't understand it because yeah, they think yep. of more like hospital or like medical model based and all of that. So I deal with that. <laughs> Again, because I don't know much about it, what sort of stuff do you do 
I'm going to actually ask for practice examples now. What sort of stuff right. do you do in, or does OT do in early intervention? How does that work? Because like, like, I would imagine a lot of the occupations for that age group would be around, you know, forming that connection with parents and that kind of stuff. Or how mm-hmm. far am I? Am I warm? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the family portion, the family involvement is a huge piece of early intervention uh, because most of the kiddos still will rely on the parents and the caregivers for, you know, providing certain things. Um, a lot of what I do is focused around kind of milestone attainment. So making sure that they're hitting their, their motor milestones, gross motor, fine motor. Um, I'll do a lot of feeding. So either kiddos that are picky eaters or uh, kiddos that have delays in their oral motor skills um, or uh, like non, non-oral non to oral transitions. So a lot of kids that will have feeding tubes that they want to, um, they want to get them off the feeding tubes or at least start supplementing. That's a big piece. Um, definitely some sensory, you know, some sensory stuff. There could be like anxiety or, um, maybe a disconnect between the caregivers and the clients. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, there, there's so many things. It's so hard for me to just like put it yeah, all yeah. into a little bucket. Like, here you go. This is what I do. <laughs> here, it's um, easy, simple, you know, so. and a lot of it is just caregiver education, um, what they should be expecting, teaching them how to read their kids' cues. That is a huge thing that I'm constantly educating my my parents on of like as in the parents you you work with not your parents yeah right i know i call them my parents i call them my kiddos everyone's (laughs) like who are you talking about i'm like my families um but yeah like like something will happen and the kid will lose it and i literally have to turn to the client or turn to the parent and say did you see what happened there and they're like no it's like well you did x y and z the kid did this there was a disconnect and now the kid is crying and you're stressed out and really trying to teach them to start to read the cues and then understand how to respond to their, their kiddo better or more appropriately. So would you say just because I'm going to, I don't like doing this, but just to put things in little boxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're doing really, everything we shouldn't be doing. I know, right? <laughs> I'm such a bad example. I feel I'm disappointed in myself. <laughs> Who is the client? Is it the parent? Is it the family? Is it the kid? Like when you go into that intervention, like who is the client? Just to frame it out a bit. Oh, um, I feel like generally I am going in for the for the kid. Okay. Right when I get my referral, it is for the kid. Yep. But. It's never just about the kid. It is about it is about the parents, the caregivers. It is about the siblings. It is about the home environment. It is about the supports that they have or the lack of supports that they have. It's about everything else. So I, that doesn't answer your question, but <laughs> no, 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 that does answer my question because uh, I think because from what you were saying, it sounded to me like you're working on the say that occupation of. Mm, whatever it is, whatever that one is that you're working on at the time, but you're working on it from the parent's point of view as in, you know, modifying 
environments or social environments or you know by upskilling them or whatever it is but you're also working at it from the kids point of view or the family's point of view or the like siblings point of view or whoever else is involved so it sounds very i was just curious as to where like whether it's more of a family directed intervention which it sounds like it is but i guess the primary like who are you actually funded to see I guess, in inverted commas. Yeah, it's, yeah, the funding is for the kid, but based being in early intervention, it is like the family approach. So we can write goals that are family oriented, that the, the, the parents will learn this type of strategy or that the kiddo will be able to engage in mealtime with the family and that kind of stuff where that wouldn't necessarily be a goal if you were working in a clinic or at a school or you know a hospital or something like that. It would be very much more like client-centered, client-focused, yeah. client where we, um, within early intervention, make sure that we are addressing kind of all complexities across the case. Because I guess, uh, I guess, in a way, you could look at it that you, I mean, the parents are, a, a, well, the massive part of the the social environment for the kids. So, as an OT, you're in there modifying the the environment to enable the the child to engage in whatever occupations they need to do. So yeah, we could look at it from that way. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I always, I, I think, I'm always curious about how because I like I have my ideas on you know how. OT theory and everything fits in practice. I'm always interested to see how other people view it, whether they view it similar to me or whether they have a different view to me. Um, mm-hmm. Just because, yeah, that's how we learn, challenge each other and whatnot. Right. And I'm a yeah. shit stirrer, so I like to challenge. So. <laughs> yeah, I think too, like just the, the getting the awareness of the parents. So, for example, Sometimes I'll get a kiddo that has minimal delays and the parents are like, oh my gosh, my world is ending. You know, my, my kid can't do whatever it is that the kid can't do. And then on the opposite end, I'll get a kiddo that is globally delayed in every single area of development. And the parents just are like, yeah, that's my kid. And so it's really finding the common ground of meeting the families where they're at, finding out what it is that they hope to accomplish but then also pushing past those boundaries if it is the family that doesn't think that their kiddo with Down syndrome will be able to ever do anything, you know, to say, hey, I've worked with these kiddos. I have experience. You know, they might not be able to do everything, but we're going to get them even higher than you think that they could get to. Um, and really just working with the families and getting them to understand, you know, what's going on, what we can do. And then also building the trust up with the kids because we are going to be pushing them that they they learn to trust us, that we can challenge them and and progress them. And then also managing, like there's always so much going on. So if you're pushing a kiddo and they're not happy with it, and of course they're crying and protesting, and then the parents are like, oh, what are you doing? You know, and they kind of start freaking out where you're like, don't worry. Just watch, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to work through this. The kiddo's going to cry. It might get worse for a little bit, but it's going to get better. And so you really kind of having that, that balance of being able to kind of just put everything together and then come out with the, the, the goal or the outcome 
later on. So do your referrals usually come from the families or from other health professionals or where? Uh, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole gamut. So sometimes it's the family. Uh, a lot of times the kiddos will come in, they're not talking, they're not walking, you know, the big, the big milestones there, um, or eating that, that would be another one. Uh, but sometimes it is coming from a doctor, uh, or maybe a family member that's like, Hey, um, you know, your, your kid's not doing this. And so then they seek out other services. I've never, I, I, just my reservation with working in peas or never having never worked in peas and the reason why was like would love working with kids i don't know if i could work with parents so i was just wondering like if that's i think if it was the parents actually making the referral then they'd probably be a little bit more buy-in but if someone else is referring to you i wonder how you deal with parents that either might not see the issue as a priority or might not have a lot of buy-in into like it's not my issue to fix you just fix the kid kind of thing like yes. how, how do you how do you deal with that <laughs> yes to all of that that's like <laughs> that's my life in a nutshell um i am constantly talking to because I, I mentor a lot of students and we're constantly talking about getting the parents to buy in especially if they come in and they want their kid to be doing something, but you know, like, all right, they want the kid to be walking, but the kid's not even rolling yet, you know? So you are working on something completely unrelated in their mind. Yeah. And they're like, I want my kid to walk. Why are you not working on that? And it's like, well, because we have to hit all of these other things. And so it's, it's building that rapport. It's, it's building that trust with them, but then also getting them to understand the, the, building blocks in order to get there. And sometimes it will take one session, half a session. Sometimes it will take months in order to get to that point. And then all of a sudden something will happen and something will click and the parents are like, I get it. And then all of a sudden you show up next the following week or whatever. And they're like, Oh, they're doing this and they're doing that. And you're like, I got them. I finally got them to buy into it. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, in that same vein, there there will be families that just think that you have a magic wand and they're like, okay, great, therapist here, do your thing. And they won't necessarily do the work on their part to make it happen as well. Yeah. How, so the other, my uh, other part of my research discovered that you tend to do a lot of volunteering overseas. Is it the same kind of work that you're doing over there or what do you do? Because I saw, I saw one trip you went to Cambodia for a while. Mm -hmm. Is it, was it that same sort of early intervention type work that you were doing there or what were you, what were you doing over there? So I've, I've gone to a bunch of different, uh, play, I should say a bunch of different countries. And sometimes I will do medical mission type work where I'm actually going with a team of other specialists, whether it's like doctors or surgeons, uh, nurses, we've had speech therapists before, psychologists, so like a, a range of people. Um, and then I've also gone to very specific uh, OT clinics. And so it, it depends on where I'm at and the kind of the, the type of population that I'm seeing. Um, the 
the OT clinic that I've been to in Ecuador is mainly pediatrics. There's a little bit of like uh, adults and older adults, but of course my, my training, my background and my passion is with the kids. So that's where I kind of gravitate to. Um, but when I went to Honduras, most of the clientele that myself, it was me and it was a OT student and a physical therapist. So we kind of made up the rehab team and mainly who we were working with were adults. And it was a lot of back pain, knee pain, hip pain, a lot, a lot of just like kind of pain management and that type of stuff. So that was really interesting for me. I think I saw, I think I saw three kids that whole week. The rest was all adults. And so it was a big challenge to just kind of think back to what I learned in school and all this kind of stuff and, and really just try to break it down into what are the occupations that they are doing? What do they want to be doing that they can't do because of the pain? And then finding out potentially what is causing that pain. I think that's like that summarized right there is one of my big sort of, what would you call it? I was going to call it a pet peeve. It's not a pet peeve. It's one of my (laughs) beliefs about the profession in that you should like the core of the profession should be the same no matter where you work. So yes, like I've always worked in mental health. I should be able to go into aged care or pediatrics and have a rough idea about what I should be doing, even if I don't have the specific specialized skill set for that that area immediately. I should have a rough idea that I'm looking at occupations and what do they need to do and what do they want to do and you know I might might need some upskilling to look at well okay this is how you actually get to that with this particular population but the core of it should be the same mm-hmm. um and I guess that's where I get my rant I can't remember which podcast I had a rant on one of the podcast <laughs> I have a rant on many podcasts but uh about people who label themselves as a specific kind of OT. Like, I'm a mental health OT. I'm like, no, you're not. You're an OT who works in mental health, but you should be able to work anywhere. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be like engineering where you actually get your degree in a specific kind of engineering. You know, you're a qualified civil engineer or you're a qualified metallurgist or OT doesn't do that. Therefore, that's, you know, that's not what we're about. You're an OT and you work in multiple or you might work in wherever you work. Tune in to episode 17 of Occupied, where we continue this chat with Sarah Putt. 